Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you today to Tanya Mars, founder and CEO of Mom, Your Business Owner, who will tell you about her business and introduce our guest, whom I'll be interviewing. Thank you, Mark. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tanya Morris. I'm the president and founder of Mom Your Business. Our mission is to support mompreneurs, black and brown female founders, by connecting them to resources and opportunities. We are in the midst of launching our very first business accelerator program, Founders to Funders. So I want to thank Mark for this opportunity. I'm so excited to hear this interview with, with Shelly uh, Archambault. She's an experienced CEO and board director with a track record of accomplishments, building brands, high-performance teams, and organizations. Ms. Archambault currently serves on the board of Verizon, Nordstrom's, Roper Technologies, and Okta. She is the former CEO of MetricStream, a Silicon Valley-based governance, risk, and compliance software company, and built the company into a global market leader with over 1,200 employees. She has over 30 years of experience in technology and leading organizations focused on business-to-business as well as business-to-consumer. She was named the second most influential African-American in IT by Business Insiders in 2013. She is the author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risk, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. It is my pleasure to welcome Shelly to Best Business Minds. Well, thank you very much, Tanya, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm going to turn it back over to Mark, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Tanya, your career sounds like four people's careers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's Shelly's career, not mine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Shelly's career sounds like sounds like four people after you got yes. done reading all that. And that was and that was cut down. That was significantly cut down. <laughs> well, Shelly, it's it's a pleasure to have you. And after teaching at Wharton for ten years, we're so glad and proud to have you as an alumnus of uh, the Wharton School. So, Shelley, why did you write this book and why this particular title? Mm. Well, you know, Mark, I've been I've tried throughout my career to be accessible. You know, when I was starting out and wanted to be a CEO and I looked up and around, I didn't see people who looked like me. And I've always made it a point to be responsive. You email, call, LinkedIn, whatever it might be. I really do try to respond. But as I took on more and more responsibility in my career, I couldn't meet with everyone that wanted to meet with me. And I said, all right. When I get to phase two, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write down what made Shelly Shelly, kind of the strategies, the approaches, what worked, what didn't, the hard stuff that people don't tell you about. I mean, all of those things. And that's why I wrote the book. But I'll be candid. I had the whole thing written and had no title. I had no title. I'm sitting there saying, all right, I want ambition in the title, but I can't just call it ambition. And I wanted ambition in the title. Because too many times for me, and I know for others, especially women and people of color, we're told that we're ambitious and it wasn't meant as a compliment, which is ridiculous. So 
I thought, all right, ambition. And then I was in a conversation with friends, all women, and we were talking about how much women apologize. And I said, you know, I feel like we're raised from birth to apologize because we apologize five, 10% of the time because we've actually done something wrong. But the other 90, 95% is to make the rest of the world feel better. It is to ease tension, smooth feathers, to show empathy, we care. You know, we use I'm sorry like people use salt. It just makes everything a little better. And we got to stop doing that. And that's when I thought, you know what, that's it. Unapologetically ambitious. Everyone deserves the right to be ambitious and no one should have to apologize for it. I think you came out of the womb like that. And I think that your parents raised you that way because anybody who reads this book, you had super special parents and everybody would be lucky to have a mom and dad, uh, especially your mom, who was an incredible person. Uh, When you read this book, what what are the three things you would like readers to walk away with after reading this book? And then we're going to dive into the book. Sure. So number one, It doesn't matter what your circumstances are, doesn't matter what your background is, how you were raised, where you came from, any of that. Are the odds in your favor? Probably not. They weren't in my favor, but that doesn't have to stop you. You can improve your odds by being intentional. So that's one. Two, manage your own life and your own career. Decide what you want and then go after it right? Be intentional. Same word. You're going to hear that throughout, right? But decide what you want for life and go after it. And then the third thing is nobody does anything of significance all by themselves. Nobody. If they tell you they do, they're lying. I certainly didn't. And you'll see all through the book that I asked for help, right? And I got help. So go get help because life is hard. And people don't tell you that either. It's hard. It's hard for everyone. That's okay. It's still doable. You were, like you say, you were super fortunate. You you had great uh, people to support you. Your mom and dad were great. You married an amazing uh, person that you talk about throughout the book. So let's talk about your parents, especially your mom, who I think you inherited your planning and leadership skills. Well, what did your mom give you that made you the person that you are? Oh, goodness. Mom was definitely a good role model. You know, my mother, even though after having kids, you know, she never worked outside of the house, but she's one of the most ambitious people I knew. Um, She set goals and went after them. You know, being ambitious doesn't isn't a career title. Being ambitious just means that you have something that you want to create, impact or achieve in the future. Right. So everybody can be ambitious. So seeing mom go after things was definitely helpful. But the other thing she did was really gave me the, the framework for, for how to be. And what I mean by that is she made it very clear very early in my life that life's not fair. You know, you as a kid, something happens to you, somebody does something to you, you know, whatever, you come home and you say, mom, mom, this happened and it's not fair, right? Well, she wouldn't hug me and say, oh, that's okay, maybe next time. No, no, no. She'd look at me and just say, you're right, Shelly, life's not fair. What? It's supposed to be fair, right? I mean, as again, you get one, I get one. Come on, fair. No, life is not fair. So what are you going to do about it? Okay, so that was one. And then the second major message was, you know, I grew up in a time when it was very racially charged and people said and did a lot of bad things to me. And so her thing was always, Shelly, you can't control what people say to you. And you can't control what they do to you. 
but you can control how you respond. So don't let them win. And her don't let them win meant don't let them affect how you feel. If they affect how you feel, then they've won. So don't let them win. So it's kind of like this game, right? Now, still takes time because trust me, as a kid, it still hurts, right? But you learn and I learned over time in terms of, okay, it's about reframing. It's about putting these, don't let them get inside of me, right? Um, So those things gave me the foundation that really set me on my overall path. Life's not fair, so I've got to figure out what I do and figure out what I do for me was, all right, setting goals, making plans, right? Trying to execute on those plans, life's, you know, life's not fair and you can't affect what people do or say, but you can affect how you respond. I own me. I'm responsible for me, right? Nobody knows me better than me. And so that in itself helped give me that inner strength of don't take other people's judgments. They don't know you. What gives them the right to judge you? You don't have to listen to them. (laughs) One of the guests from Germany, one of our audience from Germany says, um, what did you do when you were in an environment that didn't foster your potential? How did you handle that? <laughs> I've been in those environments all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, you find people. Here's the good news. An environment, a group, a company, an organization are all made up of people. I've never found an environment in which 100% of the people were against me. I've just never found that. Sometimes it can feel like the environment is, but you can always, I've always been able to find some people, right? That I can establish relationships with, that I can establish and get support from, right? So the key is seeking out those people. And I found that the best way to build support, frankly, is by helping others. It's by giving. Giving of yourself to others is one of the most powerful things that you can do because it gives people a chance to get to know you in a very positive light. And once they get to know you, odds are they're gonna like you. They're gonna respect what you do and what you say and a whole bit. And once they get a chance to get to know you and you're helpful and you're supportive of them, they tend to wanna be helpful and supportive of you. So don't look at averages. Averages are terrible. Averages never tell the story. I don't care if you're talking about numbers and finances, you're talking about people's attitudes, you're talking about polls. Averages mean nothing. Find the people at the edges. Find the people, right? They're there who have the same values, same perspectives, right? And want to see everyone be successful. They're there. You you told a great story about your parents making sure you had the full Christmas experience last minute at your hotel. What did that experience teach you? So kind of give the audience a little bit of background on that. And what did you learn from that? Sure. So what you have to know is my mother loves, loves, underscore, exclamation point, flashing lights, loves Christmas, all right? It is absolutely her holiday. And so Christmas in our house growing up, we knew we were special. We knew we were special because when we went to bed Christmas Eve, we had lights on the outside of the house and that was it. Inside, it looked like July. There was no Christmas tree, no presents. There was no decorations. There were no Christmas, there was nothing. It was nothing. We went to bed. When we woke up, 
Santa Claus had come and decorated our entire house. We had a fully decorated tree with lights flashing. We had Christmas music playing. We had every surface of the house covered with something Christmas oriented. I mean, even the toilet paper holder was wrapped in Christmas decorations, all right? Everything was decorated. So we knew we were special because Santa Claus gave everybody presents, but Santa Claus decorated our house, right? So with that as the overall background, my father gets a new job in California. We're moving from Philadelphia. And because mom and dad won't let us miss school, we move over Christmas. Well, that meant we were going to be in a hotel room for Christmas Day. And I'm sure my parents are thinking about what they're going to do to downsize this Christmas. And my siblings, or I'm the eldest, are all concerned Santa's not going to find us. And I'm like, oh, of course Santa's going to find us. We all know Santa Claus knows and sees everything. Santa Claus is going to see us flying to our hotel room. Santa Claus is going to see us get there. We're going to have Christmas just like we always do. And my parents panicked, right? Panicked. But you know what? They pulled it off. Mom negotiated with the mover to put the presents on the truck as the last point. And when he got to California, he literally stopped at the hotel, unloaded the presents, right? Before he stored the truck, um, he, she got family members to mail things to the hotel for Christmas presents. The truck driver's wife made cookies for us. I mean, she had all these things going so that literally the only challenge was the Christmas tree. Well, daddy has to drive around an area that he knows nothing about at night to find a Christmas tree. He finally finds one inside of a hardware store, right? All decorated, lit up. And he begs the man to give him the tree so he can put it in our hotel room. And the guy does. So we wake up. Christmas tree, lit, liking, music playing, presents wrapped, the whole bit. And I say to my siblings, see, I told you Santa Claus would find us. My parents went through craziness to pull that together for us. Um, what that taught me was you can do anything you set your mind to do. You can do anything, but you know what? You need help. My parents couldn't have done that all by themselves. So you need help. And asking for help is a strength. It's not a weakness. And, and your parents are great at improvising. And the idea of this can't happen or no, it's like Kamala Harris says she eats it for breakfast. That's your parents, right? Yes, for sure. For sure. So your parents made sure that you had good self-esteem. What were the keys to how they encouraged this? Hmm. You know, that this one, this one's hard. Because the whole self-esteem and confidence piece, you know, I'd love to say I always had solid confidence and solid esteem. And the answer is I didn't. You know, I had it little, you know, up until we moved to California. I thought, yeah, I'm five years old going on 30 probably, right? Um, but moving to California and the area that we lived in and all the stuff that was coming down on me, my esteem took a real dip, um, even with their help and support. So it was ups and downs. I don't want anybody to think that it's always been solid. But what they did try to do was to create a safe, supportive environment at home and reinforce as much as they could in terms of here are their messages. And because we were in environments, I believe, that were not diverse at all, um, mom got super involved. She always got involved in PTA. She ran our Girl Scout troop, right? That, why did she do those things? I think she signed up for all that stuff to help, help make sure things were okay for us. Right. It wasn't just because she wanted to be a Girl Scout troop leader and she wanted to be a PTA person and she wanted to be involved in the church. You know, all of those things I think she did as a way to try to make things a little bit easier 
right, for all of us as we were going through. Well, they certainly did a great job of that. When did you realize you like to lead and what activities allowed you to hone those skills? Mm, You know, it was Girl Scouts. We moved around a lot. I lived in seven states before we got to high school. And one of the consistent elements that my mom had for all of us was scouting. So wherever we went, we joined, you know, first it's the Brownies and Girl Scouts, et cetera. So we had that common thread. And it was in Girl Scouts that I first started realizing I liked to lead. And it was camping trips. So what happens in Girl Scouts is they try to build leaders. So everybody gets jobs and responsibilities, et cetera. And what I found is if I actually took a leadership role, then I got to help decide what everybody did, including myself. And I'll be candid on camping trips. I hated wood collecting. You need to collect wood for the fire. Well, listen, when you're collecting wood, you're picking stuff up off of the ground. And odds are when you pick it up, it's full of bugs and worms and all kinds. Ah, I didn't like any of that stuff. Um, so I was like, all right, I have to figure out how I get in charge of deciding what people do. So I don't have to do wood collecting. <laughs> okay. Um, so literally it was self-preservation that got me into leadership. And the other thing that helped me and pushed me into leadership was that if I was literally leading and in control, I could protect myself a little better. You know, as I said, there were a lot of things going on that weren't always good for me. Um, but if I was in leadership, I could protect myself better. So that combination is what really propelled me. And then when I got involved in schools, I would get involved in clubs and organizations. And I just continued that all through high school. Well, it certainly worked out great for you. Um, when did you realize that you, uh, please share with us your family's view of the concept of luck that you wrote about in the book? You know, um, I think luck plays a big role in life, but I do believe there are things that you can do to make yourself luckier because luck is really having the right skills, the right experience and the right attitude when opportunities come along because opportunities come along all the time. It's just not an opportunity you can take advantage of unless those first three things are there. So by working on skills, by being intentional, right, by developing experiences, by having the right attitude, by sharing what you want to do and what you're interested in, all of those things actually help you improve your luck that when the opportunity you want comes along, you're able to take advantage of it. I think most people um, think it if it worked for them for a really long time, they discount the whole concept of luck, but they also realize that you have to work hard to put yourself in the position to get lucky. Well, what is imposter syndrome and how did you make sure you didn't fall prey to it, especially when you attended your first Verizon board meeting? And I think everybody would be interested to know, how did you even get on the boards of these public companies? Okay. Well, first, let me talk about the uh, imposter syndrome. So, and when you say fall prey, I definitely fell prey. I just didn't let it stop me. I've been, I've suffered from imposter syndrome my entire life. What is imposter syndrome? It is that little voice. So a little voice that comes in and tells you, you're not very good. Just wait until people figure out that you don't know as much as they think you know, right? Why do you think you can actually do this? It's that voice that basically tears you down and reminds you of all the things that you've done wrong, what could go wrong, right? It's that voice that's saying, you can't do this. What makes you think you're good enough, right? Et cetera. That's imposter syndrome. Well, it turns out, study show, most people suffer from imposter syndrome. Women more so than men and women of color the most. But what does that mean that everybody suffers from it? It means it's in the air. So if it's in the air, it's not personal. It's not real. It's kind of like TV, right? Sounds real, 
looks real. It can even feel real, right? You can get scared. Kids get scared. When they get scared, you say, don't worry, it's not real. And if they get real scared, you shut it off. Well, you know what? That imposter syndrome that's coming up, it's not real. Shut that thing off, right? And when it came to Verizon, I mean, I'd suffered from imposter syndrome and worked through it, worked through it. Here I am. I've been serving on boards for eight years, public boards. I'd been a CEO for 10 years. And I'm getting ready to walk into my first Verizon board meeting and I'm all excited. And then I look in and, oh my goodness, there's the CEO of Walgreens. <gasps> there's the former secretary of transportation. There's the former SEC chairman. Oh my God, what, 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 what makes me think I can go toe to toe with these people, right? And then it's like, Shelly, come on, get over it, right? And so you put your shoulders back, you take a deep breath. All right, I'm gonna act like I know what I'm doing because eventually I will. And that's the trick for all of us. Eventually you always figure it out. So just act like you know what you're doing until you do, because you will, trust me. And getting on, <laughs> and getting on boards, you know, getting on boards, it's funny. I didn't even know what a board really was early on. I knew I wanted to be a CEO. And it wasn't until I got into my probably early 30s that I was like, oh, wait, there's something called a board of directors. And the CEO is hired and fired by the board. I want that job. And so literally, I did the research, right? And on what does it take to be a board director? And the number one requirement back then was board experience. And I'm like, well, how do you get board experience if you need board experience? So I said, okay, what that means is I need to get my first public board as soon as possible so I can build experience so that when I'm ready to actually serve on boards, because I wanted to make that my phase two focus, I will have my choice of the kinds of boards that I can serve on. And literally, that's what I did. I got, I got, became CEO at 40. I got my first public board at 42 by telling everybody, everybody that I was interested in board service, what I could offer and what value I thought I could bring. I believe you have to tell the universe what you want so the universe can help you. And then after eight years of board experience through, again, I'm now ready to serve on more boards. I'm getting more experienced in my CEO role. I can handle that. And I did the same thing. I let people know, okay, I'm interested in serving on another board. Here are the kind of boards, here's what I can do, blah, blah, blah. And I got recommended to Lowell McAdam, who was the CEO of Verizon at the time, um, by somebody that I told that I was interested in serving on a board. Uh, we're curious, uh, not and not to say what you don't have to, we're not looking for anything inside information, but what's it like to serve on a board of a public company? What happens? Uh, yes, what goes on in that boardroom, yeah. right? So the board is responsible for bottom line, providing and making sure the company is going to provide the right level of return to shareholders while executing against a strategy that will work for the long term while also being a good corporate citizen by treating their employees right, their shareholders right, their customers right, and operating within the parameters of the law, right? I mean, that's in general, that's what a board is responsible for. So what we spend our time on is governance, which is making sure that we have the right policies, procedures to address all those elements. We spend time on strategy. What is the strategy? Why is it our strategy? What we, where should we be going with this, right? Are we thinking about it right? Looking at competitive, all the strategy piece. And then our number one job is making sure that we have the right management in place. The CEO, that there's a succession plan, that there is, um, that there is a long-term view of how this company continues to execute. So we're involved in all of those things as part of being on, on the overall board. And 
you know, it's, there are times when it's pretty smooth and there are times when it is absolutely not. I would tell you last year, I had more board meetings in 2020 than I probably had in 2018, 2019, 2017, all combined because of the world had upended, right? And so we needed to make sure we were there to support the board and the activities. How many hours do you have to put, do you typically put in for each of these companies as a board member? Because people think you just show up at the meeting, but it's a lot more work than that. <laughs> no, it's, it's a lot more work. As a matter of fact, um, some of the companies actually do studies on how many hours a board member spends, both in terms of meetings and prep time and calls and all, all those things. And, you know, the numbers range. They range from something like 250 to 300 hours you kind of see on average uh, a board. So in a year. So it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, what advice do you have for mothers? And this is uh, opposite of what we've been talking about. But one of the questions that's being asked by uh, the audience, what advice do you have for mothers who are raising little girls to make sure girls grow up fully believing in themselves? My biggest advice is to foster all of their interests and all of their curiosities, right? Just don't put parameters around where their interests are and where their focuses are and constantly reinforce them and reinforce their intelligence, their role in the world, all of it. Um, But you said for mothers, and I'm going to take issue with that. It needs to be parents. If girls are only hearing it from their mothers, it's not good enough. They need to hear it from the men in their lives too, whether it's fathers or uncles or cousins or whatever, but they need to be hearing from everyone that everybody supports all of their interests. Because so many times we have a view, even unconscious of what girls should do. And so we encourage certain behaviors and we discourage others, right? You need to encourage all of it and support them unconditionally. Yeah, my daughter has a global marketing practice and I started her at a very young age Uh, She was in fifth grade when she had her first business. And so she'd always been doing these things. And she said, I never want to be an entrepreneur, but that's what she really was cut out uh, for. And now she has this global marketing practice. And my other daughter had a uh, global children's book uh, publishing business. But I said, there's no ceiling for you. There's nothing that you can't possibly do. And I became the venture capitalist helping underwrite and getting them started. But now they're just killing it. Uh, yeah. So I agree with you. It, it requires both, but especially when your dad gets behind you, I think it's very meaningful. Uh, yes, absolutely. Which company uh, you started off with as a board member, and why did you get? Why did they give you the opportunity? That's from one of our audience. Mm, so my first board was Arbitron. Arbitron at the time was a media ratings for radio. You might have remember the Arbitron yeah. radio ratings, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, They also did outdoor advertising and some other things, but they were basically a marketing research company. And this opportunity came through a recruiter. So they had hired a board um, search company to Spencer Stewart to help them find a new board member. They were looking for someone who could bring technology, a technology expertise and focus into the boardroom. Uh, Someone who also had strong marketing background someone who had actually led and run businesses at scale. They wanted, you know, they had a whole list of here's the criteria that we're looking for. And the recruiting firm, um, which was one that, again, when I told the world I'm interested in boards, was one that I had reached out to. So my name is in their Rolodex. And as they looked at the skill profile, mine matched up. So they brought me into the slate, the company. Here's how this works, by the way. Let me just back up. Yeah. A company, a well-run company, 
will basically say, here are the skill sets we need represented on our board. And that can be skill. I'm using skill generically, skill, experience, background, whatever. Here's what we're looking for. And then I'm a matrix. And as they're adding board members, they look to say, where are areas that we need to shore up or strengthen? Where do we have gaps? And then they put together a profile of here's what we want. And typically it's a series of things. We want international experience. We want technology. We want um, P&L experience. We want, you know, they have all these things they want. And then the search firm goes to find people with those skills. And then they present a slate, typically like 20 or 30 candidates. And the board goes through, looks, reviews. They pick maybe half a dozen. They look at initially and then they'll narrow it down, right? It's just like hiring an employee. It's the same process. So my name was on the slate. My name got narrowed down. I got a chance to interview and I ended up getting the job. Awesome. And are you seeing that there's more opportunity as for women and especially women for color on these public boards? Because Harvard studies have shown the more diverse your board, the better return on investment for shareholders. So what are you seeing? Definitely. Definitely. I'm seeing that. Um, If you talk to a lot of the recruiting firms, their work, um, the percentage of women and people of color that they are now putting on boards is significantly higher than it's ever been. So the answer is yes, there's absolutely more opportunity today. And by the way, there's a Harvard study there's a McKinsey study. There's an ENY study. There are like hundreds of studies. Well, I'm a huge reader of the Harvard Business Review. Uh, so all my studies basically come from Harvard. <laughs> I love that magazine. So again, I think your mom's now really influenced me after reading this book. So I asked this question, how important was it and how did it impact your career that your mom gave you budgets? I mean, you were starting out like as a kid with a budget. Absolutely. We all had budgets. Yeah. So for those of you that haven't read the book, um, money was tight in my family. It was real tight. Daddy got paid twice a month. And on payday, mom gave us all envelopes. And when I say us all, all four kids and my dad, we all got envelopes. And then that envelope was our money for the next pay until next payday. Um, to, you know, we had to, if we were going to buy lunch, we we're going to do this, whatever it was, it was there. So yeah, we were on budgets and understood the value of money very early on. And that absolutely had a strong impact on me because what I'd learned, um, in a number of ways was that you need to align how you spend your money with your, um, with your priorities, right. And with your values, Um, so let me just, can I tell a quick story? Um, yeah, absolutely. Let me tell a quick story, Mark. So here I am now, I'm a senior. And when I say money's tight, I mean, our thermostat never went above 68 degrees. It could go below 68, but it never went above (laughs) 68 degrees. Right. So I was always freezing. Um, and money was, was tight. We had to pay for everything. Mom made our clothes because it was cheaper for her to buy fabric. Right. We had a budget. I could spend $200 a year on clothing, $200 a year. Well, $200 doesn't go very far when you're buying a pair of pants and a jacket and a blouse, but it goes really far if you buy fabric. So mom made our clothes. Um, I mean, I'm just sharing in terms of how tight the dollars were. So anyway, here I am. I'm in the kitchen. I'm washing up dishes and I'm washing a pie plate. Mom, all our food was homemade. Mom made dessert every night, right? Crazy. And I'm washing the pie plate because mom has basically always gets the smallest piece of pie. You know, you cut it up, everybody reaches and mom gets the smallest piece. And I'm going, you know what? There is no way in the world that I am working as hard as my mother works and ending up with the smallest piece of pie. And I literally went out and told her, I said, mom, I'm not having kids. I've decided. I was like maybe 15. I'm like, I'm not having kids. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm not willing to work as hard as you work and get the smallest piece of pie in life. 
don't stop. And she said, Shelly, I don't care about the pie. If I cared about the pie, I'd have a bigger piece of pie. She goes, I had everything that I care about. The key is for you to decide what you care about and go after that and let go of the rest. Now, fast forward several years, mom ended up buying a horse. A horse. All right, now this is a woman. I'm telling you, we had no money. We were like, we can afford a horse? What do you mean? I mean, all right. But the bottom line is all this saving, all this budgeting, here are the dollars. Mom always wanted a horse. And she had been saving for years for this horse, right? So all that taught me, align your dollars, how you spend your dollars with what's important to you. And then we did that. When my husband and I got married, I mean, childcare was important to me because I wanted to work, he wanted to work. Before we even got married, we started saving for childcare. And it was the first line item in the budget because I want a nanny. Can I afford a nanny? You can afford anything you're willing to make trade-offs for, right? We did that first. And then we decided how much we could spend on housing, on food, on da, da, da. You know, our dates for two years was a bottle of wine and pizza. Done. All right. Okay. So yes, budgeting was a really important piece. Did you make your own family uh, do budgets? You know, it's interesting. I was more lax on the budget. We gave our kids allowances, right? And there are things they had to do, but I was definitely more lax than my mother was. But at the same time, I will tell you, they understood the value of budget. And if you talk to both my kids, they're both married. You know, my daughter runs the budget in her household. You know, my son has always been a saver. So they, they got it. What do your kids do, by the way? Ah, my, um, my daughter actually is in technology consulting. And our, my son is actually working to become a firefighter. He's a school teacher that is evolving to a firefighter. Well, tell him thanks for his service on both counts. Yes. Did you have a mentor and what did you learn and would you recommend it? Oh my gosh, did I have mentors? Just a, you know, another quick story that shaped my whole view of mentoring. I was, uh, let's see, I was at IBM about six years and IBM decided they wanted their high potential people to have a mentor. Unfortunately, I was considered one of those people, but they gave us the choice. They asked us who we wanted our mentors to be. I said, okay. I picked a guy. He was a couple levels above me. I knew him. I thought he liked me. So I put down Roland Harris. Well, several days later, I get a call. It's Roland. Shelly. Hey, Roland. Shelly, you put my name down to be your mentor. And I'm like, well, yeah, Roland. I thought, I thought you liked me. He said, Shelly, you've got me. Go get somebody else. And I was like, what? So I learned two things. One, this whole mentor-mentee thing, it doesn't have to be formal. Right? I didn't know Roland mm-hmm. considered himself to be a mentor. And two, I can have as many as I want because he told me, go get another one. <laughs> so, literally, for the rest of my career, I adopted mentors all over the place. So, I've had a ton of mentors. And I learned, Mark, not to ask, not to ask, because a lot of times they'll tell you no for all kinds of different reasons. Uh uh-uh. uh. I just started treating people like mentors. And as a result, I've had a lot of support. Remember that whole ask for help thing? I've had a lot of support and yeah. help along the way. Oh, it's like you had a jar of M&Ms and you just kept diving in and grabbing more That's of right. Them. Hey, that's right. <laughs> so one of the questions we have, how do you find the right person groups without feeling guilty about asking? Is it important to have something to offer in return? Yes, it is important to have something to offer in return. 
But let me talk about mentors for a minute. Because you're right. I mean, there are several levels above you. I mean, what can you do, right, for them? You'd be surprised sometimes. So first thing you do is you show gratitude. Let me tell you, most people I found like to help, right? But it only feels good if you know what actually happens. So if Tanya and I have a conversation, right, and I ask Tanya for some advice, et cetera, and then it go off, and then she never hears from me again, well, you know what? That doesn't feel very good to Tanya because she has no idea. Was it worth my time? Did they even listen? Did anything happen? I mean, right? No, no, no. As a mentee, you need to always close that loop and you need to let her know, Tanya, thank you so much for that conversation. It really opened my eyes to how to approach this particular situation, which I've now handled. So thank you. Your advice was so meaningful. What happens? Well, now Tanya's feeling pretty good. It's like, oh, right? I feel good. I was able to help Shelly. Well, guess what? Now that she feels pretty good, she'll be more likely to help you again because she's having an impact. So what can you offer? What you offer is you let people know they're having an impact. That is actually meaningful and it is valuable. The other thing you do is periodically, not every time, but periodically you say, hey, is there anything I can do to help you? You'd be surprised. People who tend to make good mentors, people who tend to be successful, tend to have their hands in a lot of different things. And there are almost always projects or initiatives or something where you can be helpful. So offer. I have to say, mentors have made the huge difference. I always sought them out. And now I'm 60. I still seek out mentors. I never think you're too old. And sometimes my mentors are actually younger than I am. That's right. It's all about who you can learn from. Exactly. IBM, especially the time you were there, was maybe the most admired and hardest place to get into. Sort of like Wharton, uh, where you went to. How did you manage to get noticed and what did you learn that helped you become successful there? You know, it's interesting. So here I am, you know, bright and shiny Wharton grad. And I started out in IBM um, in sales and I'm going to go become a CEO, which is why I started out in sales. Because trust me, my friends thought I was nuts. You don't graduate from Wharton and start selling computers. But every CEO at IBM started out in sales. So I figured that was the path to power, right? And that's what I did. And then I get there and Mark, there's like 125,000 people at IBM. And I'm thinking, oh my God, they probably all want to be CEO, right? So how, how am I going to stand out here? So I decided, number one, I needed to pick a major, just like in college. What am I going to build a really strong strength around? So I looked to see what was IBM weak at? And you know what? IBM was terrible at marketing. Terrible marketing. We called salespeople marketing reps. All right? We didn't know what marketing was. It was just an extension of sales. Okay. I said, fine. I'm going to become strong in marketing. Um, Second, I watched the executives, right? What they did, how they operated. And I noticed that they're all very good speakers. And I'm thinking, huh, I'm not a good speaker. How am I going to become CEO if I can't even become an executive because I'm not a good speaker? So I went and got training. I signed up for Toastmasters. I practiced. I worked on it. I worked to improve it. And what happens is when you're a good speaker, people are willing for you to stand up and represent them, which helps you get more noticed, right? And then by being good at marketing, well, Lou Gerstner came along (laughs) and became CEO, He looked around and said, oh, my God, there's no chief marketing officer here. Where's the marketing? He hired a chief marketing officer. She looked around and said, where are the marketing people? 
My first, my first executive job at IBM was a marketing job. So differentiate yourself, find the skills that are valued, right? And go build them. I, I love that. And it's a great story. And to be at IBM, people don't realize I mean, back then, IBM was the company to work for on the planet Earth. And especially when Gerstner came there, he really fixed that company and did great. If you want to list the top characteristics of positively ambitious women, what would they be? The top characteristics of positively ambitious women. Oh my goodness. You know what? I'm not even sure that there are top characteristics, but let me give you a few. One is you're intentional about what you're doing so that your efforts are building on each other. You know, I talked earlier, life is hard. And the one thing that we don't have more of is time. So if you waste time by building a lot of things, but nothing actually builds on top of each other, it's hard to move forward. I find successful, ambitious women are also women that bring others along with them, that are helpful and supportive to others. I find that they're good communicators, right? Um, So those are a few, but frankly, there's a lot of different styles. So there is not like one style of here's what makes an ambitious woman successful. There are a lot of different styles that can be successful. Do women have to become men to be successful? You know, we always hear, oh, um, to do this, you have to act like a man. What's your take on that? Thank God, not anymore. I do think it used to be the case, candidly, um, but not anymore because otherwise I wouldn't have gotten here. Uh, I I mean, when I started out in the 80s, right? I started my career in the 80s. Back in the early 80s, you kind of did have to act like a man. And I mean, and I did. I had my pinstripe suit, my cotton blouse. They had a little silk bow tie. I mean, you know, I was as close as I could in terms of cloning that whole male thing. But you know what? It was exhausting. Exhausting. Um, So like, I I can't do this. I got to be me and figure out how to be me within this overall environment. Um, So the good news is you can be you within the overall environment. Uh, But that said, it's just like any culture. Stay true to who you are, but it's important to understand the culture in which you're operating and make sure you're using strategies and techniques that are effective in that culture. If I tried to run a meeting in Japan, like I run a meeting in the U.S., I would fail miserably. Miserably, because the cultures of business and how business gets done is just very different. Well, you know what? Working in a male-dominated environment is a different, it's like a different culture. So you have to learn how to be effective in that culture, but still stay true to yourself. You're an African-American woman graduate of Wharton School. How long did it take for companies to see you were both exceptional and how could uh, and how you could bring a different point of view that would enhance the competitive position of any company? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long it took companies to do that. Um, what I can tell you is I knew that it was a result of being a black female, walking into a new job, a new company, a new role, that people were going to underestimate me. That on average, you know, people were going to think that I'm there for some reason other than my skills and capabilities. So I, I knew that. And I went in with my eyes wide open. What that did is it just meant that I knew I had to prove myself every time. So the approach that I took and what I did, you know, et cetera, I learned how to be effective despite that. But when did the light bulb hit? Because companies are just made up of people. 
I think the light bulbs goes off for individuals at different times. Well, you broke into Silicon Valley, which is another super competitive place, not always been friendly to women, as we've been hearing for years now, even in 2021. So how did you break into Silicon Valley, become CEO of a company and do well enough that people like Ben Horowitz, uh, Andreessen Horowitz noticed you and even wrote the forward to your book? Yeah, so, you know, it comes the same way. I knew when I landed in Silicon Valley that um, people are going to underestimate me. I mean, all, all the things. So I do what I always do, land, and it's like, all right, let me show you. So you do the job at hand, you support and help others around you so that they will hopefully support, right, and, and encourage you as you go forward. You try to build the most effective, capable team you possibly can, make your team successful, then you'll be successful. I mean, these are the things that I do. And then in doing that, I also go after mentors, right? I told you earlier, mentors. Well, I sought out, um, I, I went and said, okay, I need to find a support system because I'm new to Silicon Valley. And I found Watermark. Watermark is an organization for women who have made their mark. So I'm like, okay, let me find my, my network, my tribe who can support me and help me. And that's right. So I had my Watermark group um, and they helped me with introductions as I met people in business, right? There were, I adopted mentors um, and that's what really helped me. You know, when I was at North Point, which is the company, I was chief marketing officer at EGPS Sales. That's the company that recruited me to Silicon Valley. And as a result of the work that I'd done at North Point, Andy Radcliffe, who was uh, uh, with Benchmark, um, venture capital firm. He's the one that introduced me to Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen. And that's what got me the job at LoudCloud. And then the LoudCloud job, I met Bill Campbell. Well, Bill Campbell was on the board of LoudCloud. And most of you may not know him, but he's an icon, was an icon in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I had, and I adopted Bill as a mentor, right? And Bill became a mentor. Well, Bill's the one who introduced me to Kleiner Perkins, to Vinod Kozla, that ultimately offered me my CEO job. So you know, now was it all like one thing and one smooth? The answer is no, I had lots of different people, but that is the connection that ended up with the path that I took. Adopt mentors, ask for help, tell people what you want to do and let people help you. That's, that's how I did it. Now, was this a, a turnaround? I couldn't quite tell in the book. Oh, complete turnaround. Yeah, that's oh what I, that was the impression I got from reading the book. And what, what, what was the state of this business when you came in and what did you do that you managed to turn around? Certainly spectacularly enough that people wanted to put you on boards and everything else. Oh my gosh. Well, you have to understand the timing. All right. This is now 2002. All right. So the bubble had burst. Silicon Valley was littered with companies that had gone out of business, which means there were a ton of CEOs out there looking for jobs. Right. And I'm at LoudCloud and LoudCloud has decided that we're going to go from a managed service business to a software business. And in doing that, we were going to basically going to shrink the company by 75%. Well, you know what? They no longer need me. So it's the perfect time for me to go after my CEO job. From a career timing standpoint, it's a terrible time from a market standpoint. All right. So I know I'm not going to get an A play. I'm not going to get a company that people believe is going to be successful. That's going to go to people in their networks. And I'm not in that network. So I said, fine, I'm going to go after a turnaround, right? A company that needs fixing, but is connected with top-tier venture firms, has great investors, right? I want it to have good bones, even if it's broken, because I fix things, right? I take risks all the time. So that's what I ended up with, Zaplet. Zaplet was a company that had raised $100 million in like 1999. 
Now that's 1999, $100. Um, they had spent just about all of it. And when I got there, they were burning so much money a quarter. They hadn't signed a new customer in you know, almost a year. I mean, this company is going out of business and I'm hired to save it, to say, okay, we think there's a business in there somewhere, right? Is there? So this was a major mess, a major mess. It took everything. First thing you have to do is to inspire the team to believe you because everybody's going to be leaving, right? Otherwise, two, you've got to find a problem to solve that the technology that the company had built can actually solve that people are willing to spend money for in a crisis. So I had to go find a value prop, found a value proposition in compliance and risk management. We tailored the organization and the technology for that. Um, I had to get a whole new team, really. We did it, ended up doing a merger with another company to bring in some key skills. And we worked our tails off, evangelizing, right? Focused on customers, maniacally, teamwork, all these things. And good news is, eventually, we finally got traction. The industry analyst said, oh, there's a new market category called governance, risk, and compliance. And Metric Stream is a leader. This was in the beginning of 2008. Yes, finally, we've made the map. <laughs> Our phone is ringing. Customers are calling us, right, to try to buy price. Like, oh, this is great. We'll invest in sales and marketing and implementation. And then we'll raise money in 2009 to take advantage of the momentum. Well, the end of 2008 came and the doors closed tight, right? Oh, and now we have no money because we just invested it all on the growth curve. So it was like, man, we finally show success and the rugs pulled out from under us, but rallied the team again, made some really hard choices, really hard decisions, but we fought it out. Never say die. And Metric Stream made it through. Matter of fact, not only did we survive it, but we actually doubled our business during 2009, despite the fact that we had no money. Um, and ultimately built ourselves into a global market leader. So it was a tough road, but we did it. Did the people buy into your plan immediately or did you have to make a lot of changes to get the right people? No, you know, it's interesting. Initially, in terms of getting into the whole compliance and risk space, um, people got it. I mean, we, we needed to find something. And so proving this, you know, they needed something to believe in. So that part was not hard. How to approach it, right? The how was the piece that takes more time and is harder, right? And you go back and forth on. But the what? The what we got pretty clear and pretty quickly. It was just the how. And what kind of board members did you end up adding yourself to help you be more competitive and, and be successful? Well, initially, whenever you're building a company that has investors, venture capital, private equity, et cetera, your board is comprised of investors. So my board was all investors until, mm -hmm. until we got to the point where we were actually operating and doing well. And then we brought on board independents. You know, so people like Karen Blasing came on as um, our financial, if you will, expert. Um, we brought people, you know, from finance, we brought people who had business experience, right? So we, we did a, a breadth to complement the investors that were on the board. Do you have any tips um, regarding age barriers starting a tech startup as a female founder in your 50s? Mm. You know, People don't realize this. They think all Silicon Valley founders are like in their 20s, right? Wearing hoodies and walking around in sneakers. The average age actually of a founder is more like in your mid 40s, believe it or not. Nobody tells you that, but it is. So if you're in your 50s, you're fine. You know, the key is the energy that you show, the people that you surround yourself with, the, the business 
right? That you create, that's what's key. People want to understand and invest in companies and in teams that they believe will be successful and that are going after markets that have a significant size and opportunity. You found your love, uh, who unfortunately uh, you lost through cancer, I guess about a year plus ago, uh, which we're very sorry to see your loss, but you've got this beautiful family. You can see it all in the pictures uh, behind you. Uh, but at a very young age, he was twice as old as you, you married him. And uh, how did having a relationship with such a mature, experienced guy impact your personality and personally and professionally? Oh, a life partner is the single most important decision I made. And I told my kids, it's the single most important decision you will make. Um, my husband was my partner. He was my cheerleader. You know, he was my lover. He was my, he was everything um, for me. And when you say what role did he play? Um, I don't even know if it had to do with mature. I mean, yeah, he was def- absolutely in terms of mature, but the fact that he was always in my corner and supporting me and what I was trying to do for us, um, the fact that he was there and willing to make the trade-offs, you know, he ultimately stayed home with the kids, right? And raised the kids, you know, all, all those things played huge role in what our overall outcome as a family was. So he was the single most important decision I made. And I have to say that, you know, from reading the book, uh, Scotty is your name of your husband, uh, that if you had met Scotty when he was 26 and you were 19, that probably wasn't flying. But Scotty at 38, uh, because you were a very mature 19-year-old mentally, you were like an old person at 19. So that probably... um, impacted you greatly, you know, having somebody like him, who's, he was at the, you came along at the right time for him. And he certainly came along at the right time for you. Listen, it's true. I used to tease him all the time. I'm like, listen, if I met you, I used to tell him all the time, Scotty, if I met you when you were in your twenties, we never would have connected. Yeah. Cause yeah. He, he wasn't mature enough. I said, you, you needed to grow up. There was no way, <laughs> no way that would happen. Um, so, you know, it's funny. My mother always said she knew I would marry somebody older. She didn't realize it'd be 18 years older, but she always <laughs> knew it. Cause she said, Shelly, you know, you were like five going on 30. So you've always been an old soul. Um, but anyway, bottom line is on that point. And let me, let me just, can I take a minute and share something else here, Mark? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I, if you read the book, you will see that I made a lot of decisions that people told me I shouldn't make. A lot of people told me I shouldn't make. I shouldn't marry the man I married, right? I shouldn't, if you just go through, you'll see, I shouldn't take certain jobs. I shouldn't do, I was told I shouldn't do things a lot. At the end of the day, you know you. Nobody knows you as well as you know you. Take input, take advice, take perspectives, absolutely. But at the end of the day, you are the only one that can optimize for you. So you make the decision for you. The only other decisions I've ever regretted or things done is when I've actually done something for someone else. You have to do it for you. So uh, we have a couple quick questions here and we have just a couple minutes left. Do you have any daily rituals which you think uh, contributes toward being intentional and positive? Yeah. Um, So self-care. I learned early in my 20s when I suffered from about a depression because I, real, I realized with help from a therapist that I was giving 100% of my weight, myself away to everybody else. 
that I need to do self-care. So my rituals, exercise, I eat three meals a day. And people say, well, of course, everybody eats three meals a day. No, you don't, right? A granola bar and a cup of coffee is not a meal, all right? A bag of peanuts and it's not a meal. I eat three meals a day. Even as a CEO, I packed my lunch if I didn't have a lunch meeting because not because I couldn't afford to buy lunch, but because if you get busy, you just grab what's close and convenient. And so I always had something healthy, close and convenient. Three meals a day, exercise. And I know at least twice a week, I need to do something that is socially stimulating because I'm an extrovert. So I need to now engage with people. Yeah, couldn't tell that. (laughs) What advice do you have for young families with children in public schools that are often challenging environments to excel within? Did your kids go to public school or private? I couldn't remember. Yeah, my kids went to public schools. I went to public schools. Um, I believe that kids can get a good can get a good education in public schools. It just sometimes it just takes more work on your part. Um, You have to show you're engaged. The school needs to know that you are a caring parent and you care about how your kids are treated and what's done, et cetera, so that they know not to mess around with them. Um, And you have to supplement, right? And so supplement in terms of enrichment activities, right? Spend time, et cetera. But I'm a big believer in public school. If we all pull, if all of us who can pull our kids out of public school, pull them out of public school, we will make this country worse because we will continue to just stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch that divide. I'm 100% with you. My kids went to public school and they did just fine. I went to public school as well. That could be questionable how well I've done, but my kids have done well. Uh, So here's the very last question. Uh, How do you keep work-life balance? I mean, you clearly had a great family and you were married for 35 years. I'm sure like everybody else, there's some ups and downs, but how did you manage to keep all the balls in the air and and succeed? (laughs) Well, first of all, you just said a trigger word for me. I can't stand the term work-life balance. Cannot stand it. And why? What is a balance? A balance is a fixed structure that is even on both sides at all times, right? It's static. Whose life is static? Certainly not mine. So to be judged on whether or not I'm holding something in balance when the world's doing this twists and turns, it's ridiculous. I have enough things to feel guilty about. So no, I reject this work-life balance notion. I believe in work-life integration. I am one person, one person. I have my professional priorities, my personal priorities. I put them together and I prioritize ruthlessly, ruthlessly, which means I get done what needs to get done personally and professionally. And it also means there are things that aren't going to get done. And I've either got to be willing to live with it or find somebody else to do it. But integration is about trying to do multiple things at once. Realize you're one person. I'm a big believer in walks and talks. I do them all the time, right? If I don't have to sit in front of a Zoom or screen or see whatever, then hey, let's talk while I'm walking, right? Um, I do, you know, events when we could do events. If I'm going to go see a play or a movie, I mean, I enjoy performing arts. Well, I invite 20, 30 friends to come with me. Why? Because I want <laughs> eating free. So let me do it all at the same time. I started a gourmet dinner club when I moved to Silicon Valley because I like to cook. I like to entertain. I like nice wine and I like people. So great. Boom. Put it all together one time. So integrate your life so that you can accomplish more things at the same time. But this whole thing about, let me spend an hour here, then I got to spend an hour here and I'm going to feel guilty if I spend a half an hour more. I mean, now come on, give up the balanced view, integrate your life, get done what you need to get done, let go of the rest. And that's the hardest part. You decide what you're willing to be judged on. Do not, do not accept judgment 
from the world because the world will want to judge you on everything. And if you're trying to do everything that the world wants to judge you on, whether it's important to you or not, you're going to fail and you're going to be unhappy because it's way too much. Well, Shelly, it's been thrilling to have you here. I know all of us took away uh, a lot of great things. We know you're only at the half point of your career. So we're looking forward to seeing the next part and especially the next book uh, that you come out with, because hopefully you'll have another next book from everything that you're going to be learning going forward. So again, thank you so much. Please stay safe. And uh, when you come to Philadelphia, you have to come back to Philadelphia and visit again because so much of the great things happen to you. And uh, we'll cook for you. All right. Well, that's, hey, that's, that sounds like a great, great offer. So I thank you very much. And hey, just one piece of help, if you don't mind. Anyone who's been listening, if you saw inspiration or appreciated anything that I've said or, or whatever, I'd appreciate if you shared it. I'm trying to market a book during COVID. All right. So it's about <laughs> increasing awareness. So just post something. Uh, tag me. I'll, re- I'll respond back but I would really, really appreciate the help. Well, people have a lot of time to read, so they should be reading your book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Have a great weekend. Everybody stay safe. Look forward to seeing you all next week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.